It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Both the BZE Community Show and this, the Science and Solutions Show, are also available on the iTunes, on iTunes and Stitcher. So please subscribe and rate us to help others find the show. My name is Kate Winnigal and today I'm joined by my co-host Natalie Bucknell. Hello Kay, hello listeners. And Kira Rundle. Hello. Hi, Kira. <laughs> Short and sweet. Today we're going to be introducing you to the new Head of Research at BZE, Dr Dominic Hess. Dominic has been a Director at Place Agency and Senior Lecturer at Sustainable Architecture at the University of Melbourne since 2012. Early in 2019, Dr Hess moved to an honorary role as an adjunct fellow at Griffith University after moving on from University of Melbourne's Thrive Hub, where she'd been director for four years. Hi, Dominic. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Firstly, Dominic, congratulations on joining the BZE team. Yes, it's very exciting. I can't wait to really sink my teeth into the wonderful work that they're doing. Great. So, Dominic, just tell us a bit about yourself. I'm a bit of a all-over-the-world kind of person. I was born in South Africa. I grew up in Brazil, moved to Australia in 82 from Dutch parents. Wow. So I've done the whole Southern Hemisphere with a bit of backwards and forwards to Europe. I'm very passionate about nature. I love bushwalking and kayaking and all things about being out in nature. But I'm also passionate about cities and people and innovation and art and music and food and coffee and Mm, and that's a red wine (laughs) comes out in the sort of work that you've been doing which we'll find out more about later so as part of your research you say that key research questions are why when we've been doing sustainability for so long are we having an ever-increasing impact so this is a question i've been asking myself for the last 30 years and i've really come to realize that i agree with einstein who said you can't solve the problem within the system that created the problem in the first place and so i've really been looking at what are we transitioning to we're seeing the limitations of the system we're in at the moment but where are we going what what does the new irresistible future look like um you know shifting from the current mechanical view of things where we can control everything and understand everything which is leading to all of the problems that we're seeing what does the new thing look like um, that's kind of what's so we have to step outside to be able to solve that problem we do we do which is not easy mm. because we're here exactly exactly it's very easy to say it but very hard to do is that what influenced you into writing that award book designing for hope was it the pathway to regenerative sustainability that's right uh, i started writing that book Um, Just after 2009, up until 2009, I was the kind of activist academic that was out there telling everyone to grow up and tighten their belts and stop being so evil. So that was me. You recognise a problem at a very early age then? 
Oh, you think I'm younger than I, uh, than I actually am. <laughs> um, back in my mid-30s, I, um, I realised in uh, 2009 that that wasn't the right way to go. Um, and it's a little bit of a sad story. So I've got to say that if anyone's struggling with the issues of sustainability, uh, are in despair or, or feeling a little helpless, um, do contact Beyond Blue on 13 22 46 36. Um, but back in 2009, my daughter had just been born. She was uh, just under a year and I was kind of holding her in my arms and I heard about this 19-year-old student who had given up. He saw no hope and he passed away. And as I held my daughter and saw this potential for the future, I thought, stuff this. There is hope. There are so many wonderful people out there doing such amazing work. I'm going to go and spend the rest of my life looking at how we can become a positive part of the future rather than a negative part. And that's why it's called Designing for Hope. It's uh, in honour of that student and everyone else who is despairing to say there's hope, we can make a difference and hopefully all the things I'll talk to you about today is showing how we can do that. So how does the book approach that topic? So it starts by acknowledging the fact that we can't solve the problems within the system that we uh, currently are in and so it, it looks at what are, what is the current system and uh, critiques that and then says well what are all of the indicators of what the new system looks like and that new system is a more interrelational one it's a more nested system it's a more ecological system where everything's connected and things aren't linear um, what, what do you mean by that so a linear system says that a plus b equals c if we add rabbits into our environment then we'll have meat meat to eat and won't we all be happy <laughs> whereas an ecological system says let's understand the ecological system and what happens is what do we displace what are the ripples of that thing that we're introducing so it's a much more holistic systemic view rather than trying to narrow things down and try and fix the parts we actually look at the whole and, and try and imagine what the ripples are and that's where you work very ecologically i.e you don't try and do big things you try and do little things you test them out you see how the system responds so acknowledging that web of interconnections. Absolutely. And that's what I think we're moving towards. Fantastic. We definitely need to. So you wrote your book about 10 years ago in 2009. I imagine things must have changed a lot in, in the past 10 years. So one of the things that I've noticed um, is that it seems to be there's a bigger push in the corporate environment. Businesses in particular are signing on to the UN development goals. So do you see this push from, from corporations and private businesses into a more sustainable direction um, as having a big role overall in the way that we shape this future society? Absolutely. Uh, I see our businesses as the places of innovation. They are the places where they can be agile, they can be responsive, and it is their jobs to look to the trends and say, okay, what do we need to do to continue to thrive into the future? And so the fact that they're saying, come on, guys, we need to be focusing on uh, whether it's the SDGs or whether it is becoming carbon neutral or even um, I read today and um, actually this is a bit of disheartening, but uh, a friend of mine in the US just ran a workshop with some of the top 100 companies uh, and they're looking at the three scenarios of different levels of chaos that we're going to move to in the future and how those corporations can continue to thrive through that change and I'm like no no we actually can step up guys we can fix it the SDGs is like the roadmap it's like your Melways or your Google Maps but that's there's no use without getting in the car and starting it and driving down the road and so I think what we're missing is the fuel um, the will 
behind the intention of the SDGs, which is really we can step up as humans and instead of being less bad, we can actually be good. We can contribute to the capacity of this world to be more vital, more abundant, all of those great things. We can do that. We're innovative, we're creative, we can do intuition, we can test little things and, and we can bring that, that nuance to how we develop into the future. So again, that's why I see great hope and I, and I do see that the corporations are stepping up we just need to bring our governments along. <laughs> <laughs> well, that actually does seem to be the point, doesn't it? BZE, of course, has been writing report after report and very early on in the piece saying this is how the transition can occur and businesses have been stepping up and saying, yes, we can do this, but there's no support and there's no long-term vision from the government. There is. An, and uh, look, the government thinks they're doing the best they can. They're not being intentionally evil, you know. Just ignorant. Within a very constrained system, and again, they're trying to, um, they're in a system and they're stuck in that system in a bureaucracy that's developed in Australia over the last 200 years. Um, there is a much older governance system that we could look back to and, and, and say, you know, um, how were they part of this land? Not privileging either, not saying we've got it right or they've got it right, but there is a place of coming together and moving forward together that is, is critical to how um, future governance can happen in the world. Uh, towards a thriving future. So, yes, um, government have a huge role, um, both from an incentive and a regulation perspective, to give the certainty for the market to be able to do the investment and to move forward. And that's a bit that gets me angry, the fact that they're actually hampering our potential be more than anything else. Because that seems so beneficial on so many lines not just to the corporations and businesses that will then have the security but also to just everyone in the entire society yes and part of the reason is that the current system where we're at um, and I'm going to get a little bit I don't know what to do about this but part of the issue with the current system is that success is measured by money and money is such a simplistic way of measuring success and if you if you're just measuring success based on that very simple thing and you start m managing your world to achieve that thing because the more you have the more successful you are then there is no contribution because you're holding this fictional thing money we've made up as a form of exchange mm -hmm. and and it hasn't got to do with actually the real world yeah and is the economy part of the environment or is the environment part of the economy i guess that's a real argument isn't it Oh, look, the economy wouldn't exist without us. So I would say environment first. <clears throat> you know, um, if we have a thriving, vital, adaptable um, environment that we're part of, then we have the potential for a thriving, adaptable, resilient human species. And if we choose to make up economics or money as a form to represent exchange, mm. then that's something we choose to do. But without the environment, there's no people. You know, the frogs don't care. Mm. Well, whether there's dollars around. Mm, exactly, exactly. So this connects in well to your research on modern custodianship. So could you tell us a bit about that? I understand that it explores the ideas of embracing the wisdom of First Nations people and integrating it into modern thinking and techniques. So how, how and what do you try to integrate? So at this point, I'm very thankful for the custodians of this place and I pay my respects to elders past, present, emerging and around the world. Our First Nations wisdom is a huge resource that we could collaborate with and co-create our future with. 
Uh, I, I find that it's best given a couple of examples to Thank explain you. this idea of That'd modern custodianship. So, for example, the Melbourne Indigenous calendar is, is uh, made up of seven seasons. It's got nothing to do with the moon and it's got nothing to do with the December, January to date. So the season changes when you observe the change in the environment. So when a certain moth comes out, when um, the wombat digs into the ground, when the wattle comes out, those are the sorts of things that signal a change of season, which means you respond to what's actually occurring rather than something... Arbitrary. Arbitrary. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and even the moon, to a certain extent, even though it's not arbitrary... Uh, it isn't local, it isn't of this place, it isn't of Melbourne. And so there's Indigenous calendars all around Australia for each of the different um, regions um, because it is relevant to that region and what you should, how you should be behaving in that region. Now, And if it's going to change from year to year. And if you bring that wisdom together with um, modern thinking of um, how we can um, use helicopters and backburning and, and mm. LIDAR and um, thermal imaging, then we can start doing the fire management as the Indigenous people have practised for millennia. But we can bring the modern ideas and we can use the Indigenous calendar to know exactly when to do the burning because um, that needs to be in a certain season because that's when the conditions are right rather than saying, oh, it's the 1st of March, let's burn off now, which leads to all of the problems that we've, we're having. So um, that bringing together of uh, amazing Indigenous thinking and wisdom together with our modern ways of thinking. So I've got another colleague who's looking at what does artificial intelligence look like from an Indigenous perspective? Currently, all of our algorithms are very linear, right? Mm. Ba based on the mechanistic and Western world thinking. What does it look like? Imagine uh, uh, Facebook or Twitter, if um, the algorithms were Indigenous and you'd get challenged and your ideas would get broadened and you know, you'd be connected to the responsibility you have rather than this uh, current way that the algorithms just support your own worldview, um, which mm. uh, leads to that, that bias where you think everyone agrees with you when you, you, know, you might be in a minor minority. So it's fascinating, really fascinating. Mm. I'm only at the start of that journey. Mm. And there's so much to learn. Oh, it sounds utterly amazing. Mm. And yeah, just the the range of your interests is very stimulating, Dominique. That your previous job was with Place Agency. So what does that involve? So one of the things that you asked earlier, I wrote started writing the book in two thousand and nine. What's shifted since? Uh, one of the things that I've come to realise is that uh, it is really, really important just as with the Indigenous people on the calendar and so forth, to connect what we're doing to place. And so place agency is how do we create the capacity for people to invest place with meaning, i.e. if you understand a place, you love it, you care for it. You do, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so that's the idea. So place agency was um, funded by the Maya Foundation and we've been running for two and a half years and we're just coming to the end of our funding. And the intention was to develop uh, a curriculum that meant that all of our built environment graduates came out with the same language around placemaking, but also the fine skills of how to engage with community, how to listen, how to respond, how to take what community, where community are at and what they needed, and, and to do their creative magic to co-create solutions rather than coming to the community with solutions. Uh, so that's what Place Agency did and um, have, have done that. So that's one aspect. But then it's also important that industry have the same language. So there's a 
course for graduates and then there's the same content for industry and then we did 28 students around studios around Australia where the students work together with communities to create projects and so with that we've um, engaged in about with about 800 students we've done the 28 studios and we've had about 5,000 people attend various events so it's really creating that capacity in Australia to do placemaking to work with the great industry that's already out there supporting placemaking our councils and so forth to help community feel that they have a voice an agency a responsibility for where they live and what they can do can you give us a specific example of one of those projects look my favorite absolute Mm -hmm. favorite is uts the university of technology sydney uh, joe kinnenberg worked with in this um, sydney Park Olymp- with the Sydney Olymp- Park Olympic Authority um, and the Indigenous people of that area and uh, worked with the students. And this is an example of modern custodianship again, um, to understand the song lines that went through the, the area. And then the students used 3D printing technology to design artefacts that connected people as they were walking through this area to the song lines. And so there is this story of um, underneath the casuarina trees, and I've been given permission by Shannon, the knowledge holder, to share this. So under the casuarina trees, there's those nuts with the little um, spiky bits, mm. and the spiky bits are just the right size to catch your worries. So the song line talked about bringing the kids there so you could look after them because you can see them. And then if the kids are worried, you give them uh, one of these nuts and you tell them to roll it in their palms and um, the little spikes will catch your worries and you blow on it and you lay it down and so the students designed a wall made out of 3d bricks designed in the same shape as those little catches within the nut Um, and so that's an example where the students came used modern technology but listened to the wisdom to pass on this story um, on how to you know they had mental health issues back then and they had ways on how to get people to be mindful and reflective and to be able to let go of those issues so that's oh, an example. Yeah, that's a very nice example. If you just tuned in, we're talking to Dr. Dominic Hess, who's the new head of research at BZE. So, Dominic, in place agency, they talk have terms like tactical urbanism, place activism. What do they all mean? What? So there are um, lots of different levels of placemaking, and it just depends on your time frame. So tactical urbanism is where you think that um, something would be a good idea. Uh, like um, you want to turn a street into a mall and um, your tactical activity is to throw down some turf and some furniture and have a little street party and get people to feel what it's like, like they did at Yarraville, and um, and then get the traders comfortable with what it's like and, and demonstrate there's not going to be any impact, that there's actually going to be a benefit to place. So that's the tactical, so you try something out. Um, and you often use pop-ups as part, so pop-up placemaking, you use pop-ups as part of the tactical to test things out. You can go strategic where you're doing a, a much longer process and you're working with community um, to think about their place and what are their values of place and what would they like to see, you know, do they want to bring an owl back? Do they want to um, have increased uh, visitation? Do they want less visitation, you know? Um, so you work with community to get them to understand what they want and empower them to do stuff. And you say nature is a very important stakeholder well, critical. in this process. Uh, we're, we're really starting to realise, and I've got to say re-realise, our Indigenous elders know this already, how important nature is to our well-being, both physical and mental. And so designing through placemaking, designing as much for nature, actually we are nature, but let's <laughs> we, we split people we out for a second <laughs> just to, but designing so that people can thrive, but then also nature can thrive will 
have that positive feedback where people will thrive, which make nature thrive, which make people thrive, and round and round we go, um, building on each other's capacity. We, you've actually hit on a really big point, though. I don't think we as humans think we're part of nature anymore. That's right, that's right, which is really funny because um, what do you think will happen when nature's not here? <laughs> we won't have bees to pollinate our food. We won't have water to drink or air to breathe. We are so part of nature, which brings a really interesting point that kind of makes me excited and keeps me awake at night, which is if we are nature and nature evolves stuff to take us to higher, higher levels of complexity and thriving, why are we here? What contribution can we actually make to... Uh, an even better world than we know now. Just recently, um, um, Jeff Hawkins, no, Brian Hawkins, Brian Cox, sorry, the eminent physicist from um, England, came out here and he was talking about the evolution of the universe and of this planet. And he said it took Earth four billion years to get to the point that we can now exist as we are. And in a blink of an eye, we can just destroy that. It's quite phenomenal. Uh, I, I get the sense that we're sort of in teenagehood as human humanity and uh, we haven't got to the point where we've stepped up to our adult responsibility mm-hmm. yet, um, particularly in the Western world. I, I wouldn't say that for, for other cultures. I am a Western kind of person. Uh, and I think it's, it's like when I was a teenager, I thought I was invisible and I thought I could work 20 hours a day and, and then my body broke down and I went, oh, Okay, that doesn't are natural limits. That's right, that's right. And I think that's where we're at. So I don't despair. I, I can see how much good we can do and we have done. Um, it's just we, we're still in that teenagehood superpower, put on the cape kind of <laughs> part of our development. And, and I hope that we do um, learn from the next 10 years and the issues we'll be facing the next 10 years so that we can step up which I, I have full belief that we can. Correct. I noticed you sent a tweet through, and I know it's just a tweet, but you were talking about dark sky. Can you explain what dark sky is? So dark sky is this wonderful international organisation uh, which tries to work with communities to both help them understand the impact of uh, the amount of light we use at night and, and how we design that light at night, and uh, the impact it has not just on our health and well-being, but also of nature's, um, our animals' um, health and well-being. We've come up with this wonderful technology called LEDs, which are much cheaper to run and uh, last much longer, so we have to replace them less often. So for good reasons, like health and safety, we've gone and lit and things way too much. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's having an impact not just um, ecologically, uh, in that um, the moths and the bats and so forth are, are being completely disorientated by this light when it should be dark. But also, actually, there's three impacts. The health impact on us is it's affecting our circadian rhythm, so we're not sleeping as well and so forth. But also it's it's taking our connection to the sky away and mm. that being part of a bigger thing. Because is, we can't see the stars at night we can't see the stars Mm. we can't feel the majesty of the milky way and and the big thing that we are a part of Mm. and so there's that whole spiritual connection to who we are in the in the universe that we are missing and it doesn't need to be we can still be safe yeah um and just design our lights really well Mm. and And then we emit less greenhouse gases as well what a bonus 
I think we'd probably really quickly better get on to some BZE research topics because <laughs> we're rapidly running out of time and probably need to continue this conversation another time, Dominique. But what is coming up with BZE research now that you're on board? Um, does that signal a shift at all? Or, you know, what are, what are the plans? More an alignment than a shift. Uh, BZE has been doing such amazing work across all of the industries, agriculture, transport, manufacturing, energy production over the last 10 years. They've now realised what they want to do is empower communities to self-determine how they're going to be carbon zero or even beyond carbon zero. There's no reason we can't be carbon positive and start Mm -hmm. investing energy in in positive things. Uh, So uh, my joining BZE is very much around that alignment around how do we work um, together with communities so that they have agency about their carbon positive futures. An example of that is the Collie Report which is about to be launched and will be um, showing how the coal town of Collie in the southwest of Australia can thrive, not not just uh, replacing jobs, but actually creating 40% more jobs, more investment really? and shift towards a carbon positive, resilient, uh, increase their market, increase the, the job quality. Uh, we can do all of that. And that's been a conversation that's been driven together with unions, together with the traditional owners, I like to say traditional custodians of place um, and the community because in these transition talks you don't want to go from being a miner to being a teacher or a nurse that doesn't work what you'd like to do is still get up at seven in the morning take your beat up tinny to work have your smoko at 10 knock off at (laughs) three so you can go play footy you want to continue who you are within the community. Yes. Uh, we just need to transition what you do, not who you are. So and there's so, possibilities for that without being wholly disruptive of the community, are there? There is when we work together. Right. And that's the BZE have the showing how to do it technologically. But that's right. The, you go off to a hydrogen plant instead of a coal plant. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so this it means that there isn't actually a shift in the way BZE does its research, it's actually combining the BZE community and the BZE science and technology areas, is it? Yeah, working together, working together. Talking about regional reports, just yesterday there was this huge article about the Northern Territory. That was so exciting that yeah. now they've, they've been oversubscribed in their financial endeavours to get the, the whole project up and running. This is the 10 gigawatt vision that BZE has for the Northern Territory and now we're talking about a 10 gigawatt solar farm just in Tennant Creek with the power line going all the way to, uh, to Singapore. It's absolutely fantastic that we can think big. Business really loves the concept and uh, and believes in the investment. That's so exciting, isn't it? Absolutely. It is exciting and uh, we do have a positive way forward. We just need to grab it. I love that. Uh, that's the best way to end a show. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So where can <laughs> listeners find out more? Just going to the BZE website? bze.org.au. Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time today, Dominic. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And ours too. We've been speaking to Dr. Dominic Hess, the new head of research at BZE. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions Think Tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Previous episodes of the show are available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe and help others find the show. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs, please go to the BZE website and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to you joining us again next week. 
Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.